Stone is the stuff of buildings, borders and walls. And when those structures fall, their rubble and ruins are stone. Stone is the home of ancestors, the surface on which we walk. Stone is an embodiment of time, hard and rigid, but when worn down, crumbly and soft. Stone is heavy with history and knowledge and rich with the potential to create futures. Stone is the grounding theme of this episode. Hello and welcome to Canvas, FBI Radio's podcast unframing art and ideas. We would like to acknowledge and pay our respects to the traditional custodians of the land on which this episode has been researched and recorded, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, the Mirawung people of Northwest Australia, the Yinjibandi people of the Pilbara Tablelands in Western Australia, the Kwandamooka people in Southeast Queensland, and the Boonwurrung and Woiwurrung peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging and acknowledge sovereignty was never ceded, always was, always will be, Aboriginal land. I'm your host, Aisha Ash, and I am stoked to be with you as we relaunch Canvas into the world. Canvas has been rested, reimagined and reinvigorated and we will be coming to you each fortnight with a new half-hour podcast, continuing Canvas's 13-year legacy as a living archive, a place for ideas to collide and a time for you to be enveloped by art. These are exceptional times and we hope you are taking care wherever you are listening right now. This podcast has been recorded from physical distances using digital platforms instead of coming together in the recording studio. Bear with us when the audio quality reflects this at times. For the relaunch of Canvas, we wanted to focus on the foundations of our physical world. We want to be grounded. We want to think about the sovereignty of the many countries of this continent, about extraction, care and limitations. This episode is Stone and is one of three episodes, Stone, Sand and Salt, which are bound together by the overarching theme of ground. First, we speak with artist Megan Cope, a Kwandamukka woman, about her work, Reformation. This work is composed of thousands of hand-cast oyster shells, which were piled up into towering middens in the Australian Gallery of New South Wales for the National in 2019. Megan tells us about these grand shell mounds that were once found near Dubba Gully, the peninsula now known as Benelong Point, the present-day site of the Sydney Opera House and how these architectural forms trace a record of occupation and culture over many centuries, debunking the colonial claim that Australia was terra nullius or unoccupied territory. Hello, uh, Yura. My name is Megan Cope. I'm speaking today from Bundjalung country, um, but my country is Moreton Bay, southeast Queensland, a lot of my practice is centred around mapping practices and using maps um, because they're colonial tools of dispossession, challenging the way we see country, the way we see history, the way it's inscribed over landscape. Reformation came about as 
a kind of natural progression in a way. I wanted to talk about the erasure of our physical forms, um, Aboriginal made forms from the landscape because one thing that we experience often as Aboriginal people by racists is, you know, this kind of interrogation that, or this, um, you know, this denial of our existence. I wanted to start to kind of talk about the erasure of midden forms, which are, you know, cumulative shell piles that on our country have been verified and tested by white people to be 22,000 years old. I kind of wanted to, I guess, make a new map um, through a sculptural form and reveal this history and talk about the relationship of material as well. So for me, it was important to, I guess, um, connect that material, that make concrete and have the concrete in the shell of, uh, in the shape of the oyster shell. So that, you know, there's a direct visual cue and connection there. The form itself, you know, for me, it was very important to begin to inquire about the sense of scale that middens were prior to their desecration. So when we go to places now, um, coastal areas that had, um, you know, long-term use, you know, what we see now is, is, is often just a shell scatter or a remnant or, you know, just a little this and that. But the reason that they're not there anymore is because the British uh, saw them as rubbish dumps and saw them as a ready stock of material to make concrete to build the foundations of, you know, the, the colony, essentially. So instead of looking at it like a rubbish dump, which, you know, it was that, but it's not just that. And this is the kind of thing that fascinates me about the limitations of colonial gaze and thinking. It's like so singular. And yes, like a midden is a shell pile, but it's also a marker in the landscape. And before it gets mined, you know, imagine it as a, a, a monumental form in the landscape, 22,000 year old shell pile that's as high as a building. And then that form indicates that there's fresh water and like a good place to stay. And 22,000 years of doing the same thing over and over is a pretty good thing. <laughs> pretty good indication that it's a good place and a safe place and a family place and a place of Aboriginal occupation and permanency. So down there on Gadigal country, you've got the site um, Dubgully and Dubgully had the big, they recorded like, you know, it was like 100 metres long and 15 minutes high. That, that midden, they, um, you know, just simply set it on fire and did this, uh, applied what was called a, a pit burning methodology. So they reduced that shell and bone and that matter down to a composite that's kind of, um, you know, akin to lime and then used that to build the, the foundation of the British colony. And yeah, so it, that, that to me is really uh, quite violent and, and pernicious. Like it's, it, it's interesting simultaneously you've got this physical 
uh, violent erasure of a cultural site then being um, replicated or repurposed by its material. I'm interested as an artist, we're constantly having to justify ourselves in economic terms always, right? So that's why, you know, I was like, well, what is, what were the first colonial industries? And the lime burning industry was literally one of the very first extractive industries in Australia. And because it's a basic building material that we overlook, we overlook its history and its environmental impact. And, um, you know, I'll tell you what, the, 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 the men who established themselves as the lime burners, they made good money very quickly. So that's where reformation kind of came about through the basic replication of making oyster shells out of concrete to kind of connect the material with the object and to replicate it over and over and over and then you know that's sort of my attempt to kind of talk about all of those other things because western culture is so materialistic and and the value is placed in the the material that then exists in a marketplace as an artist you know, I can talk about these things in so many other ephemeral ways. People with imagination that are good at listening will be able to hear a story and, and value that. But I think that sometimes, you know, particularly in art institutions where you don't know who you're talking to, this is a good way to do it. And it's very much like in line with like Western art making and practice. That's who I want to challenge. The title of my poem comes from the title from Katie's work and it's called For Katie West, After Body Remembering. A very wide circle is drawn. Much later, a line. The earth is warm from the sun. The smell of hot rock is the same here or there, with or without the line. Inside the very wide bowl, that circle, they lean on the side of a clay slope to sit, to crack, to listen. The line is here and the line will move with or without you. Stay, crack, listen. That was Megan Cope at the top talking about her work, Reformation, and the history of middens as Aboriginal architecture. Megan made a really pertinent point about how middens tell us about both the historical building of the settler colonial state in Australia, literally forming the lime that was used to build the first colonies, but also the continued decimation of sacred sites by mining and other commercial activities, like the recent destruction of a 46,000-year-old sacred site by Rio Tinto. After Megan, we heard the poetry of NAM-based writer and educator Nika Lehman over the top of an excerpt from the audio work Body Remembering, Grinding Stone by Yinjibandi artist Katie West. The combination of this grinding sound as Katie grinds a smaller rock atop a larger one, following the grooves of the stone in a circular motion with Nika's words, is a beautiful experience of listening and paying attention to land, country and the embodied knowledge within them.
Now we'll hear from artist Alana Hunt about her work Faith in a Pile of Stones, which was a photographic installation exhibited at 4A Centre for Contemporary Asian Art in 2018. Alana tells us the colonial backstory of the dam depicted in this work, and we talk about the failures and continual violence of the colonial dreams that are built into public structures such as these. Alana's partner, Chris Griffiths, a Mirawong man, joined us later on to continue the conversation. My name's Alana Hunt, and I'm an artist and writer, and I live on Mirawong country in the northwest of Australia, in the town of Kununurra. Kununurra as a town, it emerged from kind of colonial dreams of wanting to turn this savannah country into a food bowl. That emerged out of a dwindling pastoral industry that was kind of struggling during the 1940s and that period. So by the 1960s, they were establishing the town of Kununurra and building the dam, which is now Lake, known as Lake Argyle, mm. and it, it holds a body of water like 20 times larger than Sydney Harbour. The dam wall that I've spoken of that's depicted in Faith in a Pile of Stones are millions of tonnes of large boulders and rocks that are balancing on top of each other between two mountains. So the stones fill this gap. They create a wall in that gap. The stones came from the largest non-nuclear explosion in Australian history. They literally blew up um, a mountain next to the site. At the time, there was no legal recognition of Mirawong people's ownership of that land, so no Indigenous people were consulted during that process. So they blew up a mountain and then they went to fill this gap and at the base of there is also a dreaming site that's now buried under the dam wall and the flooded waters. Um, So there's a huge violence in this act, not only like exploding a mountain but then the way that those stones were used. Can you describe what the work looks like? One of the main images of Faith in a Pile of Stone captures the dam wall between these two mountains but it also captures a um, tiny little tourist bus travelling across the top of the road which runs across the very top of the wall and, um, and on that tourist bus is a map of Australia. Um, it's just a little red map on the back of the tourist bus. So, yeah, it's like balancing Australia on top of this absurd and very violent wall. Talking about the absurdity of colonial settlement, it just makes me think of in the piece that you wrote, you're saying that Lake Argyle is the most underused dam in the world. It's absurd to put that much money, time and resources into something that then is not even needed. Yeah, and so, like, these dreams of kind of creating a northern food bowl have never really materialised. Like, the industry itself is hugely subsidised. It's it's constantly kind of trying to find the next crop that will, will make it financially viable. It employs a tiny amount of people in comparison to the amount of government funding that is, like, perpetually pumped into it. So, you know, the, the government's kind of desire for decades to fulfill this dream of a of a northern food bowl 
it's much more grounded in trying to hold on to the settlement of this place. Do you think that the the way that stone is used, I guess, uh, in the creation of the dam and, you know, to contain that environment in terms of the water, you know, do you think it contains and holds back people, the Indigenous people, the First Nations people whose land that's been um, just absolutely destroyed by that, but also the community, I mean, this is kind of, again, that absurdity of colonialism and that it's the permanence of that dam but also the fragility of it, you know. It, when it does, if it does break, then what, what happens next? In relation to the amount of water it's holding, the wall itself is quite small. And there, there's always rumours around town that if the dam wall falls, if it breaks, that the town itself will be destroyed. So I started really looking at the dam wall as kind of the heart of colonisation here. People look at the wall and think that it's so stable. And, yes, it's lasted the last 50 years, right? But, like, what does 50 years mean in relation to 500 years or 5,000 years or 50,000 years? So there's, like, an innate kind of fragility in the wall. And now we're joined by Chris Griffiths, a Mirawong man. For me... I guess farmers of farming industry takes up more land and more country than miners do. They rip the hell out of the ground. They mix their poison till they can't grow another thing on their land. And they continuously do this. And the worst part is, as they don't communicate with the community of what kind of plants or fruit or what kind of a thing they're growing on their farms. They don't tell us what kind of chemical they use. Mm. It is not told, we don't understand. We live, we feed, we hunt off the rivers of this country. And every single farm in this place, all their bloody waste goes into the waters. Is there ever any consultation or productive conversation between the agriculture industry? We call this place Australia, but unfortunately there's rules and regulations of the law of the white fella that us black fellas within each state has their own. So the rules, the recognition, the communication, are all different within each state. Also, consultation becomes a performance Mm -hmm. in itself. And the legal system and these big bureaucratic systems are structured in such a way, you know, to ultimately kind of benefit what the Australian government wants to happen. Mm -hmm. Um, So this is why... You know, Rio Tinto gets away with blowing up the Jukan caves in the Pilbara. It goes back to when the days of the old people in the bush. Uh. When the first black fellas started getting shot out there from these white fellas coming in on their boats and everything, that torment lies still within the old people. Uh. Government people come along and they say, we're going to talk about this place here. Old people say yes, because they're frightened. 
they're still stuck in the world of that torment. Mm-hmm. What happened to them in the early days? They say yes to anything. But us young people got to learn to stand up and wake up to ourselves and take note of what's important for us that's within us. And that's our culture, our law, our land, and our language. And sometimes the systems that are built up for consultation divide Aboriginal people from one another as well. My mum's side of the family is Māori and um, we're from the Tuhoi Iwi, which is the only tribe that didn't sign the Treaty of Waitangi. And because of that, for the past hundred and however many years, we've been um, absolutely isolated and um, ignored really by the government because they wouldn't sign the treaty because it was all lies anyway, you know. It was supposed to be something great for everyone, but it wasn't that at all. And then it also pinned people against each other because it looks like it's so promising and offering so much, but it's not. It's absolutely not. But, you know, you can't blame. You can understand why people want to believe that it is. This is like the weakest link, eh? Mm. That's what they look for, the government. That's how they figure out their ways of getting people to say yes. So they find the weakest link, right? And they feed him with all the crap you want to hear and all the thing, all the little sweet lollies and biscuits they're going to feed him with, you know? And then, and then he start to make that person think that he's the one who's in charge. Mm. And then that starts a big conflict between family members, family groups, and that's what government wants. They chuck out scraps of meat for us, right? And they sit back and they watch us and they expect us black to fight over that bone. And sometimes we do, but that's when we're not thinking. Mm-hmm. The homeland of this country is, is the heart of us. Mm-hmm. It's how it breathes within us. It pans with us as we, as we breathe and our heartbeat pumps. The country pumps and bleeds with us. So people don't understand that country is so important to us that it's our, the most precious thing in the world to us. You've been listening to Canvas, unframing art and ideas through the episode Stone, the first podcast in a three-part series of episodes unfolding within the theme of ground. Stay with us in the coming fortnights as we examine sand and salt, opening dialogues with artists around occupation, sovereignty, custodianship, extractive politics and resistance. Canvas is brought to you by myself, Aisha Ash, researchers Eleanor Zorowski and Jazz Money, Audio editor and producer, Kanika Kerpalani, digital coordinator, Isabella Sanasi, and executive producer, Anna Mae Kirk. The textural jingle bookending our episodes is by artist and musician, Jack DeLacy. Thank you to all the artists that have contributed art and ideas to this episode, both in and outside of the podcast. 
We are releasing lots of supporting info around each episode, including resources, extended interviews and more. So head to fbiradio.com forward slash canvas to dive in.